Welcome to Office Hours, where we follow up on the most frequently asked questions to policy and videos. I'm Tom Church, and today we're talking with H.R. McMaster about some of the most frequently asked questions from his video series, The Fight to Defend the Free World. This video series, of course, is based on his book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. If you don't know him, H.R. is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, a prolific and accomplished historian, a retired lieutenant general in the Army, and the former national security advisor. H.R., thanks for taking questions today. Tom, thanks. Great to be with you and great to be with our audience. In your video series, you go through the battlegrounds uh, that the United States is engaged in uh, across the world. And so this first question is one that you must get all the time, um, and, and it's this. If the United States is interested in peace, why is our military so engaged abroad? Why do we have troops stationed in so many countries, and why do we keep building up our military? Well, I, as, as George Washington said, the, the best way to preserve peace is to be prepared for war. And, and what our military forces do around the world is deter conflict by convincing potential enemies that they can't accomplish their objectives for the use of force. And, and of course, it's, it's the military, most of all, who, who wants to prevent war. You know, as, as G.K. Chesterton, you know, the great English theologian and philosopher said, you know, war is not the best way of settling differences, but it may be the only way to ensure they're not settled for you. And so I, I think deterrence is an important reason. And then, of course, when you're fighting determined enemies like jihadist terrorists, for example, it, we learned from 9-11 and from su subsequent terrorist attacks since then across the world that defense can't begin at the water's edge anymore, right? These groups are much more capable. Our world is much smaller in connection with how connected we are, you know, electronically, and uh, and so the, so we 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 can no longer count on the great moats of the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean to defend us. So this is a related question: What would you say to those who categorize any American involvement overseas as a form of imperialism or colonialism? Well, it's just not, it's not real. That's not, that's a, that's a, an ideological argument that comes from a school who calls themselves realists, but they really have this romantic idea that, that if the United States were to disengage from complex competitions abroad, that the world would be a safer place. But I think it's pretty clear that, you know, the United States did not cause jihadist terrorism, did not cause Russian aggression and, and Vladimir Putin's effort in particular to restore Russia to national greatness and to do so with a, a sophisticated campaign of political subversion, but also through military aggression with the annexation of, of Crimea and the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the United States is not the reason why Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party have become so aggressive internally in terms of extinguishing human freedom and extending their repressive arm into Hong Kong. Uh, but also using the People's Liberation Army to bludgeon Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier or to engage in what would be the greatest land grab in history, so to speak, in the South China Sea or to threaten uh, Taiwan. So I, I think that there, there are those who make this argument that, that, that really the United States is the cause of the problems in the world. But I think it's clear from the historical record that the United States has been a tremendous force for good in the world. Uh, when people make the argument that the United States is a cause of the problems, I would ask them, well, what would the world look like had the United States not made vital contributions to the defeat of, of Nazi Germany uh, or the defeat of Imperial Japan uh, or hadn't taken the actions the United States did after World War II to help prevent great power conflict for now going on almost 80 years that put in place an international system that helped lift 
there were hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Uh, and, and, uh, and it was critical to, to winning a very important ideological fight against communist totalitarianism, uh, promoted mainly by the, by the Soviet Union, but communist China uh, as well. I think about some of U.S. interventions that, that really prevented uh, humanitarian catastrophes from getting worse, right? What would the, uh, what would the plight of, 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 uh, of Muslims in, in, in Bosnia look like uh, today had the U.S. Uh, not intervened? Uh, what would it, what would the, the people of, of Afghanistan still be enduring if they were under Taliban rules? They were from 96 to 2001 when and within Taliban gave Al Qaeda a safe haven that was used to to commit mass murder against our country and the most devastating terrorist attack in history. So I, I think it just it doesn't make sense when people say the U.S. is a problem in the world. I, I think one of the most stark contrasts to draw is to, to ask people, well, if they think it might be better to live north of the 38th parallel on the Korean Peninsula or, or south of the 38th parallel. Uh, so so I, I just think that it, it's an ahistorical and ideological uh, approach uh, to, to history uh, that, that just fundamentally misunderstands the, the historical record. Let's move over to the greater Middle East, and because I, I want to ask you about the relationship between Iran and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And the reason I want to ask is because Iran is a predominantly Shia Muslim country. Hamas is a Sunni organization. And so from the outside, it might seem odd that the two would be um, working together. Can you explain that relationship a bit? Right. So ever since 1979, Iran has been trying to export its revolution. Uh, and and that and that revolution and that that theocratic ideology revolves around no separation between church and state, uh, and and uh, and the, a belief that the the Iranian theocratic autocracy right is is the is the model uh, for you know for the entire region. Now, for Iran to extend its influence across a region, it believes that it has to perpetuate a sectarian civil war. Uh, as it has in, in Lebanon, in Syria, in, in, in Iraq, and in Yemen. Uh, but also what, what, what uh, Iran wants to do more than anything uh, it, it, it is, to, is to destroy Israel, because it sees uh, Israel uh, as, uh, as, as a state that would check its, not only its regional ambitions politically, uh, but also it is, is defined its hostility to, to Israel in, in, in religious terms, right? And, and, um, and so Hamas is a great way to threaten Israel, and Hamas is a great way to extend Iranian influence uh, across, across the region. When, when Iran began to actively export its, its revolution, it didn't do so on narrowly sectarian terms. It was a broad uh, Islamist movement that it had hoped that the, the Iranian leadership hoped would appeal uh, to, to Sunni Muslims as well as a Shia. Uh, but now what, what, uh, what uh, Iran is doing is trying to keep the Arab world perpetually weakened and enmeshed in conflict and to place essentially a proxy army on the border of, of Israel. That includes Hamas. It also includes its support for Palestinian Islamic Jihad, another Sunni group, uh, but also Hezbollah, you know, which is its, its proxy in Lebanon. We're going to keep moving around the world. Uh, North Korea hasn't been in the news as much, perhaps, since President Trump left office. In the video series and in your book, you talk about the strategy of convincing the Kim family regime that they would be more uh, secure in their position without nuclear weapons than with them. Uh, how can we square that with reports that they've already been testing some nuclear weapons? Uh, I mean, do, do they have them? And, and is this still a viable option for us? 
I think it's still a viable option because we've never really tested that thesis that Kim Jong-un could be convinced that he's safer without the weapons than he, than he is with them. The, the campaign of maximum pressure begun by the Trump campaign uh, that the pre- was dissipated, dissipated, I think, because of the atmosphere around the, the summits uh, between Kim Jong-un and President Trump in Singapore and then later in, in Hanoi. And then because of really lax enforcement of those sanctions, China is the main violator of those sanctions, but Russia is as well. Not only in smuggling illicit goods that, and, and trade that is restricted by UN Security Council sanctions, uh, but, but, but also by, uh, by, by allowing uh, North Korea to use slave labor, essentially, uh, by, and exporting uh, laborers to those countries who send then cash back uh, to the North Korean uh, regime. So there's a, there are a broad range of actions that could be taken to enforce the existing sanctions that I think would put a, additional economic pressure on the North. The North is feeling a lot of pressure these days. There's there's talk of, of another potential famine. That may be a little bit exaggerated, but but uh, there have been some major natural disasters, floods, for example, and then of course uh, the pandemic. You know, which which may have done more to constrain North Korea's economy than any other factor. And if you can com- combine that with the, the the recognition that there is kind of a new privileged class in Pyongyang who f- can feel the pain of these kind of sanctions and then maybe begin to question whether or not not only the regime is more safe, but whether they the North Korean people are better off with or without nuclear weapons. I think there's potential. I think what we know won't work is an effort to make concessions to the North just to get into long, drawn-out negotiations that that result in a weak agreement that doesn't really constrain the nuclear missile programs. Uh, North Korea reaps the benefit of big payoffs and relaxation of sanctions, and then they immediately break those weak agreements as they continue to develop those those weapons. So I I think it's it's worth a shot to continue to test the thesis that maximum pressure can convince uh, Kim Jong-un uh, that, that he's safer without without the weapons and he's with them. I think there are other actions that could be taken too uh, against China. You know, uh, Chinese banks, for example, if they continue to facilitate trade and and economic um, uh, flows and financial flows that are uh, that are in violation of UN Security Council resolutions. Let's end by talking about China. Um, it's interesting to go through American uh, foreign policy and attitudes toward China, going from the Obama administration to the Trump administration to Biden. Because during the Obama administration, there was the the pivot to to Asia. But I'd argue that it was only during the Trump administration's time that American foreign policy, maybe the world uh, attitudes toward Chinese foreign policy aggressions uh, really came to light. But my question to you is, is it possible that we're actually overestimating the threat from China? Uh, I'm looking at Xi Jinping perhaps uh, overstepping his bounds. They're cracking down on billionaires. The elite want out. Um, There's indications that they may make military overtures toward Taiwan sooner rather than than many people expect. But is it possible that that he's over overstepping his 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 bounds? Well, I don't think we're we're overestimating the threat from the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but I but I do think we we have to be cognizant of opportunities, as you're suggesting, probably the you know, the the, the person who is most responsible for helping to convince the rest of the world that the Chinese Communist Party uh, is a threat uh, to all humanity is Xi Jinping. And so maybe we should send him 
some flowers and a box of chocolates and thank him for, for helping to convince our allies that we have to compete much more effectively against the, the broad range of aggression of the Chinese Communist Party, which in, involves military aggression, you know, from the Himalayan frontier to the South China Sea to the threats to Taiwan and, and Japan. Uh, but, but it also is the sophisticated campaign of economic aggression, a campaign uh, I think that, uh, that is best described as one of co-option, coercion, and concealment. And so you see that most dramatically today oriented on Australia. And I think that you know, China thought that uh, this would be a successful effort uh, to kill one to scare a hundred. But instead, what it has done is that it has really galvanized the rest of the free world uh, to, to band together against Chinese coercion. You see that with the with the the the, uh, the comprehensive agreement on, on investment that uh, that uh, the European Union was considering falling apart. Uh, you see that with countries coming to to aid Australia, uh, the renewed emphasis behind you know behind cooperation uh, with among the world's greatest uh, largest economies, especially those of of Europe and and Japan uh, and and the United States. And you can also see it with a high degree of international cooperation that's being fostered in other, you know, less, less formal uh, organizations or, 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 uh, or, or, or venues, you know, like, for example, uh, the quad format uh, of the US, Japan, Australia, uh, and, um, and, and India. And so I, I think that, that, um, that the momentum is in a positive direction in terms of, of recognizing the need to compete against China's aggressive actions. But I think the, the, China, the Chinese Communist Party is not showing any signs of letting up. Uh, I think that, that, uh, that wolf warrior diplomacy is, is here to stay. Uh, the, 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 the person who is rumored to be the new Chinese ambassador to the United States is <laughs> extremely aggressive and I would say offensive. If that's the case, I think that's good because we want somebody, I think, who, who keeps us very much aware uh, of the party's um, aggressive aims to, to create exclusionary areas of primacy across the Indo-Pacific, but then to challenge the United States globally. And, you know, for many years, you know, people argued that the best way to deal with China is through cooperation and engagement. Others have argued that, well, what we really need to do is just manage our own decline relative to China. But, you know, the, the stakes are quite high, right? And, and all you have to do is to look at, you know, look at what's happening in Xinjiang uh, with a campaign of cultural genocide. And I think it is not only, you know, it only makes, not only makes sense from an economic perspective, from a security perspective to compete effectively with China, but it, this is also very much, I think, a moral comp competition and one that, that, uh, that, that, that has very high stakes, in, including, you know, the principles that, that we hold dear, such as, you know, living under rule of law, uh, representative government in which people have a say in, in how they're governed, freedom of speech and you know, of the press. So I think if, if these principles matter, which I think they, I think they do, uh, then I think that, that the, the, you know, the free world has to really work together to counter the, the aggression of the Chinese Communist Party. That was H.R. McMaster answering your questions about national security. If you'd like to learn more, make sure to read his book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. And make sure to follow Policy Ed from the Hoover Institution on Facebook or YouTube to see new videos every week. <laughs>